And welcome to another episode of Game Theory Podcast, your podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making. Bonus round, Chris. Bonus round, uh-oh. Yes, that's uh, <laughs> our, our idea for when we want to do a show, but we don't want to do a normal Game Theory show, and I know. For those of you that are here for normal Game Theory stuff, we'll be back. This is not We're not changing the format of the show. We are simply here to have a conversation. So this episode is going to be two things. One, we're just going to update you on the show and our lives, and we're going to BS. And then we're going to do a bonus round about uh, the state of chess. There's a lot of things happening. The candidates tournament, the NFL Blitz tournament happened on chess.com, which was Nito Burrito. And, of course, we went to a tournament. Allegedly, that was not a great chess experience, but it was a fun experience. I blogged about it. It was a whole thing. So we're going to get into that. If you're here for chess, you can skip ahead. But Chris, first and foremost, it's July and everyone's just kind of throwing their best content against the wall and hoping something sticks. That's pretty much right. And we don't really have good content to throw no. against the wall. So we're just throwing content against the wall. Correct. And we're just going to see what happens. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, a couple of announcements for the show. The first thing is I did research and I had no idea how many people read newsletters. I had no idea that people like to read newsletters. I thought that newsletters were just something that companies did to like, hey, check out our brand. No, it turns out people like them. Yeah, and, and I don't really understand why. Uh, I, <laughs> I mean, I guess I do. Makes sense. You start off your morning reading the news or whatever, but I, I don't really know what content people are looking for in news. Are you, are you talking like newspapers? Yeah. Like so if there's the, if the New York Times was delivered directly into my inbox every morning. Yes. So the, I used to, I, I, when I was a do-gooder in college, I signed up for a bunch from the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal has two kinds. Two, two kinds. They, they are A, like summaries of different stories with links, or they are just like an editor kind of tells you what's going on, like a, the, the clips, like the above the fold first two paragraphs of about five stories. And they were really helpful when you read them. I just didn't get into the habit of doing that. It was a really cool scroll. It was really like a simple idea. I host a sports podcast that's essentially just a sports newsletter with me, with my commentary on it. But that's all to say that, Chris, the game theory is getting a newsletter. Game theory is getting a newsletter. We're trying our hand at writing. Uh, I don't <laughs> think we've actually successfully written anything since like the 12th grade. Yeah. So this is going to be a new fun venture for us. Uh, we're going to be talking about the content of the show, obviously, yep. but we're also going to be going a little bit deeper, like uh, throwback to uh, Paul Harvey, the rest of the story. Right. You'll get a little bit more insight about things we learn while we're researching the show, get a little bit of personal tidbits from us. And it's going to be really exciting and really fun, I think. We'll be getting to flex a new muscle and maybe producing some quality, more quality content for you to indulge in Player 3. Yeah, exactly. So the newsletter will, will include one original blog or written piece by us. It'll include various links to recent episodes we did for every episode that we publish. And it's going to include things that we're reading around the internet um, that involve game theory stuff. So like not going to be covering the news. Like you can Google it, sports scores and analysis, not for us. But when something weird happens, like a deep think piece on say the live golf tour, which we are going to talk about at some point. We just want to see how it plays out first. That's going to be in the newsletter. You can subscribe uh, soon enough. I'm going to unleash that. I, I would like to, the goal would be to send out our first email to however many of you subscribe in August to match the academic calendar, because I believe the academic calendar is the only true, only true calendar out there, Chris. I, why the Julian calendar starting in January is so annoying. That's just right in the middle. I don't First like of all, it. calling it the Julian calendar. Is the Gregorian is, uh, calendar? That's as close of a, 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 as close to a flex as you get. Is, hmm. I think it is the Gregorian calendar. Whatever. The Julian calendar is wrong, because... October, mm. oct means eight, but it's the 10th month. So I think the Gregorian calendar. I thought that that was, Julian. this is a fun thing for people to yell us. I thought that October was not the eighth, that they went to November to be the ninth, but October was for Octavian. 
Well, no, I, 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 well, December being the 10th, right? DECA being the 10th. I think they just inserted June and July or no, July and August. January, February, I thought. No, no, because it's, it's, it's it's July for Julius and August for Augustus. Yeah. No, that makes sense. They just, they just like threw those months in there. They're like, do not worry about the numbering system. Seven, (laughs) eight, nine, 10. Do not care. Uh, We're going to shunt those. And I I would like to point out, mm. Nick, that. The numbering system would be correct if we were in a base, a base 10 12. system. Yeah, yeah. So, we will do a base, base 12. 12 system. Yeah, we will do a base 12 episode soon enough. That, That is for sure. Uh, but speaking of episodes that we've got coming up, uh, we have one that I'm really excited about. So I studied storytelling and journalism and marketing and, and sales in college. And there's a legendary commercial. Many people think it's the greatest commercial of all time that kind of digs at something quite a bit deeper. The Man, legend- people, are, people are saying it's the greatest commercial of yes, all time. Many people have said that. Many people have said. People are saying, right now, in fact, people are saying people that it could be the greatest commercial of all time. It digs at something deeper, which is like this idea of body dysmorphia and how your perception of the way that you are perceived is either incorrect or can drastically impact your 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 thinking and your decision making like one thinks of like the telltale heart with Edgar Allan Poe where like they don't do they know do they not know the first scene of Inglorious Bastards like knowing and being wrong or being right like the kind of perception of of your perception of your perception is a whole thing so we're going to do the Dove Beauty episode and different experiments with body dysmorphia that'll be fun also Chris we're checking in on the state of sports in America we're going to do 15 minutes or so on each major league in the United States. And if we've opined many times on the show about how summer is just sports hell and what better time to be miserable about the state of sports in America than during the season of sports hell, we're going to be talking about all the major leagues. Uh, We'll talk a little bit of college football as well. There's a lot going on. Obviously, you you think of these like timeless games. The NFL celebrated its 50th anniversary a few years ago, blah, blah, blah. Rules change all the time. Rules are constantly changing and evolving to protect the interests of players, protect the interests of fans and integrity of the game. Above all, really to get more eyeballs watching more television sets so they can sell more TV contracts. But, we're going to be breaking down what rules changes or trends or cultural issues or whatever are plaguing yeah. the major sports in America. And we're going to try to bring some expertise on the show to figure yeah. out what we can do to resolve some of those issues. We are attempting to find some journos and some nerds to bring on to discuss these kinds of things. And what I'm talking about, like, like, for example, baseball, we wouldn't be talking about steroids, like cheating on an individual level makes sense. Like the Astros cheating, like that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about systemic kind of complex game theory-esque problems. Like for example, uh, overtime in the NFL or this NIL thing in college football, does it have the power to disrupt anything in baseball? Like we'll look into things like robot umps and just like, are people actually leaving the sport, viewers, blah, blah, blah. That's what this is going to be about. It's not going to be about like Deshaun Watson and his alleged insane sexual predatory... Uh, allegations. So that's not that's not what we're talking about. We won't discuss any of Deshaun Watson's many many settlements out of court. Many and some that are still ongoing. And then also we're going to do another fraudster files. I think my favorite one, the biggest holy shit case maybe. Uh, not the scariest person, but the biggest. How did this happen uh, with Elizabeth Holmes? That's coming up in, in August. And we'll do, many people have uh, done this. There are plenty of materials you can check it out yourself. But we're just gonna and we're we're gonna put it on the index. We're gonna rank these people. Chris. Yeah, and she's going to be ranked pretty highly. I think so. You say she's not scary. I think she's pretty scary. She is pretty scary. She, she was able to get some really, really powerful people to buy into ultimately what is a very stupid scheme. I think <laughs> playing on both her, her own personality as like a really high-powered, driven, innovative woman in a space that mm-hmm. was in sorely 
uh, sorely lacking in women leadership, but also playing on the complexities of biology and the fact that scientific literacy in America, even among like the really well-educated, is really crappy. Yep. You know, the pandemic showed us that people don't really understand how biology works. And it's really hard for people to trust experts because once the experts get going, it tends to get really hard to understand and really boring. Right. Even if the experts are, are articulate and clear, translating those things into what can I do, practical instructions, just really, really hard to do and get people to really buy into the message. And I think Elizabeth Holmes was able, able to capture that with her force of personality, with her persistence, and through good old-fashioned American ingenuity. Just, yeah, just uh, good old-fashioned lying. She was also really brilliant, and she innovated a business technique that has kind of changed things and made this a now a systemic problem, which we'll talk about, which is, which is awesome. Great for her. Uh, she'll, be, she'll be remembered for a long time. So we're going to do that coming up in August. And we've got a bunch of shows. Um, we're, we're, we're inching ever closer to being a weekly show as more subscribers come on on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube, the YouTube channel. We're trying our darndest. So the more you demand of us, the more we're, we're going to do it. And uh, yeah, so that's that's the, where Game Theory is right now. Next episode, the Dub Beauty commercial will be out in less than a week. This is, again, a bonus round. So Chris, let's get into chess. So what do you want to talk about first? Us getting our ass kicked, the Philly World Open being annoying, uh, the Candidates Tournament, or the NFL Round Robin Blitz Tournament that happened on chess.com. I want to start with the World Open because that's one that you and I actually have personal experience with. Player three, we mentioned several times on the show in weeks past that we'd be going to Philadelphia the weekend of July 4th, not only to celebrate America's heritage, but also to participate in the 2022 World Open Chess Tournament. Uh, that's a tournament that's been going on for 50 years now. This was the 50th edition of that tournament, and it's a huge deal. Just hundreds and hundreds of players from all over, really, the world uh, mostly the United States, though. I mean, there are uh, there are quite a few international like grandmasters. You know, there are players from Algeria and India and France and the Ukraine and Vietnam and all over the place. And there's a lot of prize money on the line, a lot of chess to be played, nine rounds of chess over the course of several days. And I don't know about you, Nick, but I had a blast. I, I, I took a couple of buys, so I was only able to play for five rounds of the tournament. But even so... It was fun chess. It was a good time. I enjoyed it. And I was reminded, I was humbled really, to remember that chess people are the most awkward people on the face of planet Earth. In the world. Yeah, 100%. Um, so for, wait, 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 wait. Did you say you played five rounds? I did. Because when I left rounds. on Sunday, you were like, I think I'll stick around for this last round. Did we sleep in later than we thought we would? Well, whether that happened or didn't, there was a miscommunication <laughs> at the tournament. Because remember, we, we dropped out. Yeah. We were supposed to drop out for you for round eight and nine, me for round nine. Yeah. And I got an email that morning in the, the pairings blast out that they send out to everybody. Did you have a buy? And it said that you have been withdrawn from the tournament for rounds eight and nine. So oh, clearly okay. there was a miscommunication somewhere. I'm not going to blame the tournament directors for no, that because, no, no, no. you know, it's it's hard to uh, it, it's hard to run so much with such a big tournament. And they're busy folks, and like I said, chess people can sometimes be really hard to deal with, like really persnickety and and a lot of scruples. They, cell phones are not allowed at these tournaments, for example, because right. you can just look up the look up the game on any internet chess engine and, and kind of cheat. Right, and they just had the hardest time trying to get people to just put away the darn cell phones. It's it's crazy. It's the weirdest thing. Everyone's like, oh, well, these rules about, like, no cell phones, like, clearly that doesn't apply to me. Or, like, right. I'm just checking my phone. They, they reminded me in college one time. There was, like, a, there was like a little, I don't want to say cheating scandal, like, but somebody knew the answers to, like, previously used homework. And 
classmates of mine were like using this this file that had all the answers on it and and I was like, well, you guys, that's kind of cheating. They're like, well, it's not cheating. I just use it when I get stuck. Like, Dog, <laughs> that's what cheating is. Like the so, uh, the mere math books got the answers at the back of the book. Yeah, they're like, oh no, I, I I don't I'm I'm not cheating with that. I'm just I use it as a hint when I can't figure out the problems on my own. It's like, bro, the rules are there <laughs> specifically for situations like this one. Like specifically, so you're not like parents reaching into your pocket, checking your phone, looking at your kid, communicating. And uh, there are really subtle ways to cheat in chess, and it's kind of unfortunate, and it really destroys the integrity of the game. So I get why they have to be so strict about the no cell phone policy, but man, just getting people to comply to that, like even the simplest instructions can sometimes just go right out the door. They, they, they're like among the least respected instructions in Yeah, light, and this is such a solvable outside. problem, and I don't know how the chess world, and I blogged about this, and I don't know how they're doing financially. I would imagine, okay, not great. That's my guess because I know the money's not going to pay the tournament directors. I know the money's not going for web services or marketing. I don't know where the money's going. Just prizes, I guess, but then I did the math. I was like, no, this is way short. Uh, I don't know where it's going, but that would be a fun investigation. The problem is that people don't, there's no second level thinking. One of my favorite Philadelphia radio, sports radio talk show hosts had this thing where he would talk about second level thinking. Like, what's the next step? What's going to happen here? So the hotel they had it at is a notably fine hotel in a great neighborhood in Philadelphia. It's right downtown. It's walkable distance from the Philadelphia Art Museum. It is not the greatest, nicest hotel. Like, this is not a pharmaceutical conference. It's not going to be at this, like, red carpet place. But it's fine. Like, it would be, if you had a company meeting there, it'd be fine. There is a bar. There is a, a gym. I think it gets fine. It's a fine hotel. It's going to be a great spot. Whatever. But... Chess, and people don't know this, chess is played mostly by children. Most competitive sports and games are played mostly by children because the rest of us have lives and jobs and money needs to be funneled places and you got to grow up. So children are there and they're running around and they're being kids and good for them. You see little girls and boys playing chess and it's awesome. But this hotel was dog shit for children. There was nowhere for them to go. And it was, Philadelphia has a really great place downtown, like closer to where all of the history stuff happened. Like just let the kitties Go outside. They need to go outside. They need to run around. And for parents, how how there there was no badges, no security. Like I was thinking there the whole time. I was like, man, if there if there was a if, if people had some really intense uh, hatred for Indian Americans or, or Chinese Americans, this would be just such a great target. Like, yeah. there's no security. It, yeah, it, I mean, it really is great to see all these parents taking their kids out to do something that's like a wholesome activity that's challenging. It's a sign of intellectual development and helps kids think through processes and and a lot of these kids are really super disciplined too i mean they're they're like little books i mean they they learn the lines they learn the principles and they play good chess but man it, it it's just really hard to coop these kids up for such a long time in these little kind of lobby meeting areas and expect them to behave really well and have it be a nice polite sensible tournament it's just it's just a hard thing to do, I think. And you're right. Like, there's no, there's no next level planning. So I, I don't know if the the Continental Chess Association, which is the association that runs the World Open, I don't know if the CCA has deals with this hotel chain or whatever the case is. But yeah, I think I think there would have been better venues to give people some space, right. give people some time to kind of decompress away from all the action, and maybe uh, get people to chill out a little bit. Yeah. No, that was in it. The cell phone thing is crazy. Just give them passes and be like, you can't come in here without the pass. Or set it up in a gallery 
so that you can watch from above because probably the problem is that like parents can look up answers for kids and then there's plenty of helicopter parenting going on in this like actually plenty. probably more aggressively worse than like even like your white trash dad in Tennessee at a little league baseball game like it's bad and like you can tell people's weekends are not going to go well if their kids don't win and then they could cheat I, 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 saw, I saw a couple of a couple of dad offs yeah in, uh, really in you know, shut like, up you know, dad standing behind his kid dad standing behind the other kid and they're just you know watching and they're shuffling and shifting every time the kids make a move and and you know, it, it was at one of the lower rated yeah. tables. Or they 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 divide these tournaments up by sections, so it's not like the grandmasters or whatever going in there and just like dunking on four year olds. It, it it it's broken up by you know the quality. How good of you players. are, yeah, 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 yeah. And at one of these lower rated tables, I saw. I swear, these dads were just they were like doing everything they could to like mentally communicate to their kids. Like, all right, you have checkmate in one here. Make sure you find it. And then the kid just makes a completely random move, has nothing to do with the checkmate on the board. The dad's like shuffling all over the place, and he's like looking quizzically at the board. And the other dad's like, "Oh yeah, mm-hmm, yeah." It, it was really cute. I mean, it was absolutely adorable to to watch these dads like get so into their kids' chest. Yeah, I like that. But, but I, I mean, end the day, you, you can't really like have that. No. Yeah. There, there's a reason you don't see like the elite GMs families hovering around the board and like. Get the hell away from the board. I think I've seen there were was it when Magnus beat Anon in 2014. I think the gallery was closed. Like I think that they like you could watch behind glass. Like you couldn't what, even was it closed? I think I think people could watch live, but I think that they were like in a separate room. Like when Magnus became world champion, which is what 2012. Whenever it happened, I've seen the video and I'm like, there's no one in there. Like it's just them playing in this this spotlighted thing, which you can't do. That that's not practical for this situation. But there aren't even like badges to scan. I don't know who's a player, who's a parent, because they're like we're kicking out spectators. And I was like, well, I'm a player. Do I get to spectate? What the fuck are we doing here, guys? Does anybody just have a plan? No, they really don't. But and I would like them to because um, it seems that we talked to a girl at the bar, Anna. Uh, she was a vice president. It's great to see young women between, I mean, girls and young women get into chess. And she was saying that she's been playing chess her whole life. And there's more girls and women than ever, which is still bad. It's no way. There's no way it's double digit percentile, but um, much better. Yeah. It, it, chess is a crazy, crazy imbalanced game. And mm. yes, there's no reason for that. It, it's really unfortunate. It's unequal. And I, I think this is a case where it's, basically 100% because of, like, historically, women are not encouraged, like, girls are not encouraged to play chess. Right. I think the Queen's Gambit, like we said in episode one of this show, right. Queen's Gambit was excellent because it gets more people into chess. You know, and and I, my, I have some more complex thoughts about that. But really, it was a positive thing to see so many girls and young women playing in, 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 in all, really across all yeah. rating classifications at, the, at this tournament. Uh, I uh, I was absolutely smoked by a girl who could not Same. have been older than twelve. Yeah, I was smoked uh, by a girl who was about young, nine. Young, young Lulu was able to uh, get a positional advantage that she turned into a material advantage, and she won in a king and pawn endgame. Absolutely pristine technique, and uh, I could see it coming from a mile away. But that's the girl because you had two games that were marathon games that pissed me off because I wanted to go yeah. out, and you, I, I, had to I was wait not for happy you. about them either. But the the one guy that ended in a draw, which is annoying. But that girl beat you, and so she used every second. And she figured it out, and good for her. I lost to a woman, a girl, a woman, a girl, nine year old named Ming Wei, and Ming Wei uh, was incredibly patient. She also used a lot of time. She's like, mm, I'm. She sniffed it out every time. So, Damn it! There were yeah, a lot of options. Kids, these kids have a lot of. They they do have a lot of patience. They're a lot more patient than I am. Yep. 
They and they're and, willing well, to walk. And it pays off. Like, look, we're we're the ones who are losing the games. Right. I found that they're really mental. They're willing to sit there and mentally check out, and then come back to the game mentally and figure it out. Anyway, it was incredible to see more girls and women. Um, our friend Anna is exactly like us. We're like she was there to play. And to party. And like that's what we did. And it was great. Philly, great food city. You can read the blog of our experience. We had we jammed a ton of very famous, good Philly places, and a lot of it just kind of happened haphazardly. And it was really it was really great. Uh, um I'm motivated to study now because I'm rated in the U one thousand, U twelve hundred level, and like in with really hard work, I'll be in that level for probably a year or two if I work hard. Um so yeah, that's where I am. Yeah, there's there's no question. Like you're you're in you're solidly in the range of being a beginning player, mm-hmm. uh, and that's not a reflection of like how long you've been playing the game or like how I don't know how good you are. It's like how how much study time has gone into your chess career versus playing the game just to kind of pass the time and and be casual about it. I am not much better in the in the chess universe. Mm, yeah, it, I, uh, I I'm I'm. Hovering right at the at the U sixteen hundred mark, I'm like fifteen eighty something. I think right. after that last tournament, uh, which, I, like I said, is not great. I mean, it's not even really very good, but it's where I'm at. Yep. And I'm happy to be there if it means I get to play more chess and be relaxed and you know understand that chess for me is not uh, it, it's not a career. I'm not going to win any money back at these tournaments. There are just too many good players who are studying, putting in the effort, reaping the rewards for of that effort. And I'm just not gonna not gonna be at that level, but still, it's it's a blast. I love going to these things. Yeah. I love making small improvements to my game day by day. Do a little bit of studying here and there. I'll crack open a book every once in a while in the, in the days and weeks leading up to the tournament. But it's just such a fun game. It's it's really uh, I don't know. It's I, I I think calling it a performance art is probably a stretch, but it's as, it's as low level of performance art as you can get. Yeah, I think. And it's so fun, so complex. It's endlessly complex. You know, it's mathematically true, Nick, that there are more ways to play a complete game of chess than there are atoms in the observable universe. Atoms, so ex- things that we know exist. <laughs> yes, incredibly small, like te- like to the 10 to the minus 10 meters, like impossibly small. So I think I looked it up. I think that there are th- the, the three games that are like bananas, like impossible to even describe how unlikely it is to repeat certain things were chess uh go the ancient chinese game of go game of go and uh poker anything to do with like repetitive card play because of how many cards there are it's unlikely that things will be repeated well with the with the number 52 52 factorial is describes the way that you can arrange like how many different arrangements of 52 cards can you get you know 52 times 51 times 50 going all the way down to one that number is so big that it's literally astronomically small odds that if you shuffle a deck of cards, it's it's almost a guarantee that that particular arrangement that you've just created by the act of shuffling has never been and never will be in existence ever again, unless you like deliberately arrange the card. Like right. it's it's crazy how big that number exactly. is. Exactly, you know it's 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 so hard to replicate. It's yeah, that's and that's that's what makes it fun. Is like you, but what's weird in poker, go and chess, you find yourself in the same situations over and over and over again. It has to do with openings and because the, the odds of shuffling the deck of the right order are low, but the odds of getting pocket aces somehow, are, I mean, they're low, but they're not like. I mean, you'll get them if you sit at the table long enough. That that happens. So that's what makes the game the game is fun. So let's get into a little bit more chess stuff. What I was saying, Chris, is that at my rating level and my age. There's no, there's nothing stopping me from attempting to win a section. 
and I eventually I'll move up to a section. I suspect that where you are now is where I could eventually hope to be in the next like five to 10 years. That's not an unreasonable goal, but where I am right now, I am more than capable intellectually of winning a section because it's just all the beginners together that, that, uh, that seems possible. So I'm, I'm kind of thinking about like taking a little bit more seriously and like finding a coach and like seeing what's happening. I bought a book about my favorite black opening and after reading 20 pages of the book, I'm convinced that I'll never, ever, ever play anything else with black until there's a two at the front of my rating because it, this, it's incredible. It was underrated. I knew that it was good because I've been playing it on chess.com, but apparently it's perfect for me. It's it's a really underrated rating. And so for, for those of you who uh, who follow chess and play chess, Nick plays the opening with black D6. And that mm-hmm. can translate into so much. It's so versatile. There are a lot of systems with black that have a pawn on D6. There's the classic British lion. Mm-hmm. Uh, Philidor defense has D6, features D6 prominently fo- following E5. And the versatility you can get out of that opening is pretty remarkable. And you, the good news is that you can play it no matter what Correct. your opponent's first move is. You can play it on a fianchetto. You can play it on e4, d4, c4. All the classics, that option remains available to black. And it remains good for black in all, pretty much all of those scenarios. Yeah, and now, so I, I, and I knew that inherently. because So what happened with me is I watched a video by GM Ben Feingold, who was at our tournament. I think he withdrew after he got his ass kicked. I think, I'm not sure. But um, that, would, that would check out. Yeah, no, I think he withdrew. And I, I watched his video with him, and he explains how in a match with Roy Robson, he used the Philidor because people hadn't been studying it, and he thought that maybe Roy would not have studied it. And he got a very simple draw. There was a, a and this is, a, remember, this is a chess bonus round, so we're going to talk about some nerdy chess. He found a novel move in his engine that people hadn't played at the GM level, and it worked out incredibly well. Roy, I mean, it was a, a relatively simple draw. I think this happened like in 2010. You can look it up yourselves. The novel move ended up being, I want to say it was something like queen G4, but that's the queen G7. No. Well, and it's hard to evaluate that without knowing when and what else was on. So that's the novel move for the nerds. But what I found when watching this video is like, if you, if you start with D6 and then uh, knight F6, it just can become the Philidor anyway. And so I started playing that all the time because I liked the Philidor shape. I liked being patient. I liked the seventh uh, rank. I think that's what makes me comfortable with black. And I started playing it just regardless. And I naturally found like King's Indian and I found the French and like it just kind of happens. Um, and it works all the time as long as you figure it out. But now that I got the book, I'm, I'm really excited to get a much, much deeper understanding of it and play it competitively. Because right now I just use it because I'm so comfortable with it. I'm scared of defense so much. Um, but now, I mean, I'm really excited. It's the first time I bought a book where I'm like, okay, this is about an opening. Because the other books I have are tactics and I need to learn endgame stuff, but I'm excited to, that has me really excited to learn this. I, I think, so th- there's, there's a, a bit of like challenging conventional wisdom about how to like study chess. I think a lot of young players and beginning players are drawn to openings because the opening is like easy to kind of comprehend. It's not hard for a person to keep like three or four, like a sequence of three or four moves in their mind and just be aware of what those moves are for the purpose of continuing to play that and starting out the game. I hear this constantly, constantly. I'm hearing players say things like, well, you know, I, I feel like I know what to do in the opening, but once I get to the early middle game, I have no idea what to do in a much more real sense. I have no idea what to do. (laughs) And, I think part of the reason for that is that people are a little bit too drawn to opening study. However, however, studying tactics is very important. Studying the end game is very important. Once you get a basic grasp of those things, though, I think opening study is actually can actually be underrated mm-hmm. for 
a lot of like new players because it's fine to know what tactics look like and what they should look like. But sometimes it's hard to figure out like, okay, when should I be trying to identify tactical study? Well, if you know an opening, if you know the principles, if you know them like truly back to front, you can figure out, okay, this opening is likely to lead me to a position where I'm going to get some kind of tactical advantage. Yeah. I know what kind of, what the end games are going to look like out of this system because I've seen it played all over and over again. I've played it myself many times. I know what to expect coming out of the opening, and so therefore I have more control over what the middle game looks like, and I can control my destiny to a higher degree when it comes to figuring out favorable end games. So once you know those basic pieces, if you can make an opening for yourself that works that's going to get you to where you want to be, I think you're in a better position than if you had totally eschewed opening study and focused on tactics and strategy and all that kind of stuff. Studying the opening is like a practical way to to put all those other important study skills yes. to use. Yeah. And so I, I, I think it's awesome. I, I'm... I'm Happy so to hear that you found an opening that works for you. Uh, yeah, and like, and the fact that there's a book, and like, I, I had a guy watch a game I was playing, and then come up to me after, and he's like, "Yeah, I, I'm a chess coach, and uh, I have a student that plays D6, and like, I thought I didn't think it was a good thing, and like, now I, as we're learning it together, we're finding out like this is a thing that people should play." And Chris, I, I think I told you this at the at the uh, tournament. Um, I like into getting better at chess to playing golf. If anybody's played golf, because I we the, the golf course was my and our babysitter a lot when we were in our early teens. Loretta would just drop us off. We'd walk nine holes. It's four dollars and fifty cents, which I wow, look, that's crazy for under eighteen. I didn't even didn't register how cheap it was, but. The way that golf works is when you start playing golf, you hear people that have been playing golf for 2, 5, 10, 20, 50 years tell you that drive for show, putt for dough, which means that teeing off the ball is great, but you get good at golf when you're on the green. And you hear the exact same thing in chess. Like, yes, openings are fun. Learn your end games. Learn your tactics. And I'm here to tell you, no. And I'll tell you why. In golf, the way that you start, the way the hole starts is on the tee box, and you're going to have more fun if when you tee off, it's down the middle. And so don't even worry about that other stuff. Just do your best. Anyone can putt. We've all been to putt-putt. Whatever. You'll learn that when you need to. Right now, if you tee off and it goes over to the right or to the left in the rough or the shit or the desert like where we played, golf is going to suck for you. And that's how openings are. Because if you don't know openings well enough, you will have lost every game you play by move 10. You just don't realize it, and then you'll get frustrated. Like, why is this happening to me? Well, you didn't tee off correctly. It's, it's very similar to like knowing dances. You can't go to a dance club if they still have those and do the waltz unless you know the goddamn waltz. <laughs> do, they, do they still have those? Tell me you're married in your 30s I without telling me you're married in your 30s. It's like going to a swing dance. Like swing dancing will, will be fun. Like, well, it won't be if you don't know the stuff and you need to know the stuff. You have to know the stuff. And as soon as you know the stuff, then you can worry about getting the ball on the green and getting the, the ball in the hole. But just start off going down the middle. Yeah, there's a, there's a chess author, really prominent chess author named Jeremy Silman. Uh, wrote a great endgame book. He's written you know dozens of books. The guy is just a virtuoso with with teaching the game of chess through the through the medium of the book. And he wrote uh, reassess your chess and in like the amateur's mind is another one that that kind of comes up a lot. He's like you know I, I want to figure out what makes kind of worse players tick and try to identify where where their thinking differs from like the grandmasters and stuff. And one of his things is like. In, when people learn openings, people who are trying to take like the Zen study route are like, okay, I'm not going to memorize just like a bunch of openings. I'm going to learn the principles and I'm going to learn concepts like 
I should develop my pieces and I should develop my queen after my knights and bishops and I should castle early and I should make a good pawn center. And like they learn these conceptual ideas that are true and are important, but they don't have like a practical vehicle with which they can use those concepts to create an advantage. And Silman's thinking is like, well, a lot of players learn this stuff and then they play the opening just kind of mindlessly. They're like, well, I should develop in the opening, so I'm just going to develop pieces. And it kind of turns into just mindless following the rules. Right. And he said, that's not really the point of the opening. The point of the opening isn't to get developed and get castled and blah, blah, blah. Because that's how you wind up with, well, I know the opening, but uh, I don't really know what to do after mm -hmm. that. He said the point of the opening is to create imbalances in the position that are favorable to you and to leverage those imbalances to create plans in the middle game and launch attacks or set up to take the brunt of, of, of an adversary attack to create concrete plans like, all right, there's a positional indicator that I should advance this pawn and undermine my opponent's center. Right. I'm going to gear everything I do around that pawn advance. Like, that's my plan. That's my objective. I have a specific target in mind. I'm going to make this move. And what do I need to do in the meantime to set up for that move so that when I play it, it it generates a favorable outcome for me? That's the point of, of studying the opening. So if you know the ins and outs of a complete system like you're doing with D6, you're in a much better position to be able to make those determinations and identify what kind of plans would be good and figure out how to execute those plans in a in a meaningful way in the course of a game. And I, I think that's a good use of time. I have, a, I have an example for you. So the opening I like with white is I like to get players in the scotch game, which I don't call that an opening. The scotch game is a specific thing. I call the opening just like 3d4, right? So it's e4, uh, knight f3, d4. Like challenge the center right away as long as he plays, my opponent plays uh, e5. What I know for sure, and this is again nerdy chess talk, is uh, e takes d4, Knight takes d4, knight takes d4, queen takes d4. I know for a fact that that is a massive advantage for white, but it's not like a point advantage in the, the engines. It's just like, a, like a, an advantage. I don't know why, and I don't know how to advance that. And I know that online, and I, for the most part, players you play over the board in a tournament would never do that because they know that it's an advantage too. Again, I don't know why. That's what I need to study. And I, I'll never see that exact response because, again... At tournaments, everybody knows that. But if I do see certain things, at what point in the opening do I understand how to pull out? And I, I, I blogged about this. I don't know if you read my blog with, and I, I, we were in line eight or nine of an opening, which I was pretty proud of. And I transposed things. I did things out of order. And I know, and the engine was like, yeah, that's not what you want to do. Again, slight disadvantage, very, like tiny mathematically. But just by moving my bishop on the seventh move and, and my knight on the eighth instead of vice versa, I created a disadvantage for myself and I don't exactly know why. And that's what I need to study so that I know that when he does something that's a little different or a little novel, I can be like, okay, that was a fuck up and that's how I'm going to attack the fuck up. Yeah. Well, and, and you can fall back onto the opening principles to figure out what constitutes an advantage versus not. So after you've played E4, E5, Knight F3, Knight C6, D4, E takes D4, Knight takes D4, Knight takes D4, Queen takes D4. White has a pawn on e4 and a queen on d4. Black has nothing, nothing going on. In, in like they, they, Black has nothing developed. They're missing their king pawn, and they're missing their queen knight. And that's it. So white has the center. White has a piece developed. White is clo much closer to castling. Black's king side still has, requires two pieces to move before white's... Uh, white's only has one piece to move, the bishop. 
once that bishop moves, the queen is active, and so you can start creating threats with it. And white is just white has the tempo advantage, white has the development advantage, white has the space advantage. It's just better. Black is basically at the starting position after that. And so you can look at those like opening principles, say like, ah, yes, okay, I'm behind in development. I don't have as much space and I have a lot to do before I can start creating plans. Okay, that's not a good advantage. That's not a good imbalance right. that I want to create. Right. So that's why most players will go another route. They're like, oh yeah, you know, I, I don't want to give up my my knight. I don't want to give up my e pawn. So I'm going to make white make that determination and right. or capture when it's favorable for me. Yeah, and of course, I know the lines pretty well. But then I had another issue where, like, the worst blunder I've ever had over the board, and it's because I just wasn't settled, and I think we rushed in there. Like, it would have been nice to play, like, two or three games against each other. But And it's because I overthought the situation, and I played. It was not a line that I'm super, super comfortable with. I'm good with main variations of the Scotch game. But this was like a – this is a standard response, what the guy did. I just wasn't as versed in, in it, so I screwed up, and I know that, like – running it through an engine, like, oh, yeah, that's obvious what I did. Um, I just gave away a piece, and then I, you know, it happened so early, I was like, ah, I'm going to make you work for it, and he did, and he won, and it was fine. But that kind of thing of, like, just understanding inherently, like, of the five or six things that you play, knowing ten lines deep, and then of the things that you're going to see, knowing at least five or six lines deep so you can get into principles, because I, I know, like, right now, what's also what's funny on a sidebar, what the GMs are playing becomes popular on the internet, and then that becomes popular OTB. So they bring some things back for whatever reason, these geniuses, and then the internet's like, oh, that's fun, and it trickles down. It goes from the 2800s to the 2300s to the 1800s, and then it's at 900 blitz, and, and then it, it becomes a thing. So I, I don't know if you've seen it. I saw Petrov at many boards that we were there. And that has been kind of defunct for years. And then I think Magnus or maybe Fabiano brought it back. Yeah, that, and that's the fun thing about chess. It's like, okay, what's the what's the perfect way to to play? I, I was I was having a conversation with somebody a few years ago, and they said, well, okay, chess is kind of lame. Like computers have solved chess, and to a degree, like that's that's kind of true. But I mean, there are still chess engine world championships. It's like whose engine is better, whose database of games is going to inform whose better algorithm. But there are so many games yeah. and so many possibilities and so many diverse openings that as much of a factor as like creating an advantage in the opening is like some are just fashionable. Some are just more fun to play than others. Correct. Like I don't I used to play E4 openings exclusively because I kind of understood those a little bit better. And I was just more comfortable with the with the positions that came out of them. I switched to D4. And I've really started to like that a lot better because I feel more confident in my ability to create a pawn center at some point in the game. I have more control over that. And that's just more fun to me. I don't know if it's better, per se, than E4. I think there are a lot of players who would argue that it is. <sighs> and it's a good way to stave off certain opening responses from black that are dangerous. Right, 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 right. But it's just more fun for me to play those openings. So I'm, I'm going to play them. And like yeah. it's, it's playable, and I can create advantages and win some games that way. And that has as much to do with what openings you see, especially at the elite level, yeah, yeah, as yeah. You know, what is theoretically the perfect opening. Yeah, and at the elite level, it's a little different because they know their opponents so well. They have teams working around the clock for months in preparation. And basically what it is, it's kind of like baseball. We're like, well, these people don't know that I can throw a curveball, so I'm going to come out and throw a curveball. And they're like, son of a bitch. I did not... I've been practicing the slider. Fuck. And like, but they're, they're so geniuses as well that they can do the same thing. That's what makes it really fascinating at the GM level. And I, I heard this conversation, I've seen it on TikTok, about whether or not you should study Grandmaster games. And my argument is no, unless they're like brilliant, uh, like concept changing things. And I'm going to talk about Morphe and old Kasparov stuff that really changed thinking. Unless a game changes thinking, 
I say for a player like me, don't study them. Study games that are important for the history of chess. And, like, and everybody will tell you those famous games. Like there is a, a famous, uh, like the Immortal game with Kasparov, like that really cool thinking kind of stuff. The Opera but House game. The Opera House game the is obviously like, game. yeah, Rui Lopez stuff, like the, the windmill, all of that kind of shit. Very important concept changing stuff. But just studying random GM games for me, like that... I think of GMs the way I think of professional basketball players. And like, I'm just watching because this is crazy because it's just so much fun. Like you're not, there's nothing that you can watch Steph Curry do. We're like, I'm going to replicate that. And then like, you can learn how to dribble and understand what he does, but his ability to control his muscle memory. And you know that because he, if he quit basketball, he would be a top five golfer in the world in a matter of months. And I'm not joking because his ability to do the same thing every single time is at a level that most humans will never be able to calculate. So just enjoy it. Don't try to be Steph Curry. Don't try to be Magnus. Just watch Magnus and Fabian and be like, this is kind of sick. I like this. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a reasonable way to understand it. And it's really deceptive, too. Like, remember a few years ago, I'm not going to drop this person's name because I, I, don't, I don't think he deserves that kind of credit, but there was some dipshit <laughs> who convinced like the Wall Street Journal to come out and film him. He's like, I'm an yeah. obsessive learner. I love learning things. So I'm going to spend a month and learn something. And one of video. his like fa- like one of the attention getting behaviors he exhibited in trying to display this was uh, I'm going to beat Magnus Carlson in a game of chess, and like that's just it, the the level of ignorance required to sincerely believe that he could like learn how to play chess better than the world champion of chess. Like I mean, it's just like somebody who doesn't who thinks chess is like limited to a, a cheap folding game that you can go buy in some like bookstore or something. And I remember this guy saying, like, well, I'm going to disrupt chess because I might not be able to think like a human, but what if I can think like a computer? It's like this this dipshit seemed yeah. unaware that people had invented chess computers decades hence. He's like, I'm going to write an algorithm and memorize the lines that come out of the algorithm. And at well, the didn't, time of didn't filming, like Kaspar play thing, Deep Blue like in the 70s? Well, 90s. No, whatever. Is that same thing? Like many decades ago. Yeah. And and this guy was like, he had like written his little algorithm. And no, no, I remember filming. It was still running. It was. Yes. So this guy's crappy from scratch at home, (laughs) shitty chess computer still had not finished running the algorithm. And I don't know what the output, I don't know what output he expected to get from that. Like, here, play these lines. And he, clearly, he wasn't familiar with the fact that there are more chess games than there are atoms in the universe. He's like, he's going to memorize all this shit. And uh, he played Magnus and predictably got smoked immediately. It, like, <laughs> yeah. it wasn't even an interesting game. Like, they didn't even publish the game. It was like, this is completely boring because some moron is trying to challenge the best player I, in the world. I watched the video. I remember when that happened. So I think the Wall Street Journal, they were like dabbling with, with how to get into new media. And I think this guy like pitched them on a series as like a Silicon Valley disruptive kind of thing. And I don't. I'll be honest, I don't see another one. And I follow, I'm very brand loyal to the Wall Street Journal, especially at that time, which came out when I was in college. I didn't see another one. I think that they were like, what the fuck? Is this, this is your best effort, huh? Magnus beat him in like 18 moves or something. It was just like very whatever. And then the guy was like, did I have to make some good moves? Like you were okay to like six or seven. Like it was fine. Yeah, because um, he, play, he played lines that he had probably seen in books. Right. Which like, huh, I don't know what to do after the first few moves of the opening. Right. Like, yeah, because you are not a guy playing. To, it'd, be, it'd be like if somebody was like, I'm going to go outlift Brian Shaw, the world's right. strongest man. I'm going to I'm gonna defeat half Thor Bjornsson in a Atlas Stones contest over the course of one month. How much training have I had? None. Right. Forever. Like, just the, the sheer arrogance and stupidity involved in that. Like, like, look, chess is a beautiful game. 
it is not it's not friggin you know no disrespect checkers players actually you know what disrespect checkers players it's not checkers <laughs> checkers have been mathematically proven not to be winnable like if both players play ideally mathematically you yeah. can't win chess right. is not like that that no. the, that the, the the jury is still out on whether chess is a winnable game so yeah. i just i i can't I can't abide by that kind of crap. That was it was uh, hilarious to me. I also like, and that's I mean, we talk about it all the time. The fun thing is at the at the super level, at the NBA level of chess, they're playing each other as much as they're playing chess, and you see that all the time. I know that'll get us into our candidates conversation, and then we'll wrap up. Maybe we'll touch on the NFL to get out of here. But uh, the candidates tournament happened this weekend, which is the double round robin. Of course, qualify for the world championships. We expect most people listening at this point in time are chess people. And I, I, I read about it, and I watched some podcasts and some TikToks about it, and this is sort of what happened, right? The first is that you have two rising stars that participated, and they showed flashes but got fucking smoked. And that was JKD, the Polish kid. I think his last name is Curse Duda. I forget. I lo- he dummied Magnus in the World Cup, which is how he qualified. But in the candidates, with months to study, he got dummied. He had a tough time. And the other one was, uh, I think he's pronounced his name, Alaray... Ferruja, how do you say his first name? Do you know? I think it's Alareza Ferruja. Alareza Ferruja. So Ferruja got dummy too, but both these guys showed flashes, and they will be back. They're very good. Oh yeah, then, yeah they're, they're excellent. Like they're they're, they're all star players, and they're really young too. Yeah, they're very young, and both of them were. And Magnus was like, Ferruja has been spending a lot of time on Bullet, and now this is what it happens, and now you got to go back and find the right coach and all this. And Duda like clearly I, was scared. Bright lights, big city. I think I think uh, Magnus's words to describe Ferruja were, uh, "He's back to his old form of playing bad moves quickly." Yes, he said he said that on a stream. Like, whoa, dude, he's so cocky. I love it. We'll get into that in a second. But then you have another level of guys right in the middle, and that was like uh, Richard Rapport, and I think, uh, what's the Eastern European guy's name? I forget. Uh, Rajabov. And Rajabov, those guys were happy to be there. This is great. We're clearly top 10, 15 players in the world. And they had good showings. And like, there's not, it's not impossible that they'll be back. I would say it's possibly unlikely. But it's like they clearly belonged, which I think was part of the conversation heading into the candidates. And then you have a, 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 a level of guys like, mm, maybe you should have won or tried harder or done something different. And those are three people, one of whom did win. Uh, Jan Nep- Nepomnici, I think is how you say it. Nepo. Nepomniachi. Nepomniachi, whatever. Nepo is going back where he won the candidates and whether or not he can has a chance shot at the title we'll talk about. But the other two guys were Ding and Fabiano Caruana. Now, what happened with them, Chris, was fascinating. And I don't know how closely you followed it. I followed it because having chess on during the day is a great thing. Chess and baseball are great to have on in the background. Just great. What happened with Ding was he was an enormous betting favorite. And he was like the favorite coming in. Ding, I think, had two draws quickly and maybe even a loss. And that happened while Nepo got a point and a half right away. And then Nepo was able to just kind of lock it down and play basic. And Ding was playing catch up. And he just was never able to be aggressive enough to do that. The opposite is true for Fabiano, which is really disappointing. And it seems like this, this is like maybe the most painful loss of his career. And a lot of people are like, mentally, how do you come back from this? What happened was he was so well prepared and had such novel groundbreaking ideas in like the first 15, 20 moves of games that people were wowed. However, he was, it, it took so much out of him. He was never able to finish anything. He ran out of gas in like the last five or six games of the tournament. He didn't turn those games into wins where he had all these novel ideas. It was clear that he was ready to go. I liken it to a football team. Actually, Notre Dame is a lot like this where they'll get like a 17 to nothing lead in five minutes and they'll end up losing the game like 31, 21. And you're like, we were just what, how we were killing. Like we were, we were so much better. We were prepared, but like, it's a game. Like you got to do the whole thing. And 
Then there's one other person who is there, which I am super pumped about this. Hikaru Nakamura, after just electing to not play classical chess and be famous, qualified after coming back to the classical game in like a year, and then went to the candidates and was like, still got it. He, did, he played really well. It was very clear that like he wasn't in shape, but he was in shape enough to beat a lot of the other guys we talked about, and he was this close. Like We were this close to world champion Nakamura. Do you understand that? Do you understand how close we were? He took third, which if Nepo can't play because of the Russia stuff and Magnus doesn't challenge, we were this close to, to Hikaru winning the candidates or being in the second, third challenger match. We, we were close to, to Hikaru Nakamura world champion. So that's it would the be, break. It'd be very on brand for Nakamura. Who, Nakamura is kind of a divisive chess personality. I think he's just like not a nice guy. No. I think he's just like a really arrogant. Uh, he, he tends to be really, really whiny. Just yes. a lot of complaining and a lot of like self-pitying stuff and like you know, for for a guy who's kind of like the been the face of American chess for a lot of years, it's really unfortunate. Uh, I I don't like that that's the brand ambassador abroad, and I'm really happy that uh, that Caruana is is kind of kind of taking up the mantle. He he was the last guy to uh, defend against uh, to, to, to try to challenge Magnus Carlsen for the world championship before Nepo uh, this most recent round, and uh, you know, good for Hikaru. He's going to go down as one of the all time pretty good players. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad we didn't have to deal with world champion Nakamura. And I think uh, Nepo versus Carlson may or may not be a good match. Carlson is just better than all these players. He's just in a different league. I mean, yeah, he's so just in a different stratum. The I'm with you with regard to Hikaru. He's definitely annoying. He's definitely the most famous player for the sake of streaming and like pop culture. Magnus is the most famous player probably maybe other than Bobby Fischer ever. Um, but like everybody kind of agrees with you on a deep level of a uh, uh, level of this kind of thing. So I think the only question left is, is, is Nepo and, and Carlson going to happen? Carlson wants to change the game and Nepo is Russian and they're like, he might be banned. So we'll see how it goes. I think he renounced the, the war. He did. He did. It might not be enough. He might have to leave. <laughs> Great. He might have to leave the country, which would be good for him. And then if Carlson doesn't play is, it's not a world champ. It's a world champion, but it's not a world world champ to me. Chris, the NFL blitz tournament happened. Chiboti Awuzie, the cornerback for your Cincinnati Bengals, is the best blitz player. It says his rating is 1,100. Pretty good. He, he beat up uh, Amari Cooper pretty bad. Uh, makes makes you miss uh, John Herschel, who was mm-hmm. actually a great chess player. Really brilliant guy. Polymath. Line so, the Ravens. You know, Joe Burrow, the quarterback of the Bengals, is also a chess player, but he didn't want to participate because he likes playing under a pseudonym, which makes yeah. me think he's either really bad or really good, which is fun to think about either way. I wonder which one it is. I wonder which one it is, too. That'll do it. We'll be back with a normal episode of Game Theory. The Dove Beauty commercial is coming up next. If you want to participate in that conversation, there's a poll and an open thread on Spotify. Chris, it's time to go to work, man. It's time to go to work. <laughs>